our event is so remote that when you go there, you feel like you're on another planet. The nearest town is an hour away by driving, and the nearest city that actually produces light pollution and actually has, you know, a Walmart and things like that, it's four hours away. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again. No Ben today, but we do have, by popular demand, a special guest, Frank Boyder. Thank you for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. It's a real privilege. I'm a real fan of the show. Awesome. Uh, For people who don't know who you are, um, maybe give us a little introduction of yourself and let us know how you got interested in World War II and how you got interested in reenacting. Sure thing. So uh, a little bit about me, where I am today before I talk about sort of my past. Uh, For those of you that don't know, I run a World War II reenacting YouTube channel called World War II Freak 001. I mainly do like YouTube videos and stuff about my hobby and how to's and things like that. But uh, more about that later. And that's kind of how a lot of people today really know me. But a lot of people don't really know how it started. And a lot of uh, a lot of where my past started came from my grandparents, actually. I had a couple of veterans and they would tell me stories here and there about their time of service. And it really just intrigued me to the point to where I had to know more on my own without them telling me things. So um, I'd go into the libraries and I'd get books. And of course, this is me when I was six or seven years old. I'd go into my school library, uh, picking out the World War II books, looking at the pictures. And eventually I found out that you could play video games of World War II. And that excited it even further. And Eventually, I got a couple of friends together, and we played Army in the Backyard. It just eventually escalated from there to, hey, now we can put on uniforms we get at the surplus stores. We can play with our toy guns, and that's kind of how it evolved to reenacting. And you can imagine, you know, step after step, it got me to where I am today. That's really cool. Uh, what has it? What has your experience been like doing a World War II YouTube channel? So I started my YouTube channel back in 2009. Now I know a lot of my videos aren't from 2009 or even the early 2010s. It's because I unfortunately deleted them. I kind of wish I had them on. But back when I started YouTube, it was a very different world, meaning the hobby itself was in a very different place. I remember when I first started, this is when the Band of Brothers craze was fresh off the boat. And everyone was doing paratrooper this, paratrooper that. You had a couple of guys doing rangers for Saving Private Ryan. That energy was still pretty high up. And you had a whole series of different YouTubers at that time. Airborne Boy 506 is one of them. ETO Films is one of them. Uh, There's a whole other series of, of channels out there I could list off. They still have YouTube videos to this day. But those were some of the big ones at the time. And over time, it shifted. I remember how the Pacific came out and everyone was doing uh, Marine Corps. That was the new trend. And then eventually the Generation War series came out. And then all of a sudden the German 
uh, YouTube pages showed up. But um, that's sort of the history of the reenacting community on YouTube. Things have since died down since then. But um, my experience on YouTube has been pretty cool. I remember when I first started making YouTube videos, it was just kind of showing off my gear. And uh, even though today I still kind of do that, I kind of taken advantage of my channel to evolve into a more educational program where I can show people how to do things and what means what and how to put something where. And based on the feedback, I believe that it's a very helpful tool for reenactors and people who are just interested alone. So seeing those comments always makes my day and cheers me up and keeps me going. I know there are a lot of young people and a lot of new reenactors who are looking at YouTube when they get started in reenacting, or maybe they're just interested in World War II reenacting and they find stuff on YouTube. It seems to me like that's maybe a primary vector sort of for people finding out about World War II reenacting at this time. Do you think that's the case? Oh, yeah. I, I think absolutely YouTube is a primary tool to getting people interested. For me, when I was a kid and I was getting interested, I would look up videos of like short films that people would make in their backyard about World War II. And I would look up, you know, in the related section, I don't know if you remember, but the YouTube layout used to have videos on the side that were related to the video. So they were about the same thing and not just based on things that you click on historically. And um, because everything was related, you could go down rabbit holes. And I know for me, when I would first click on a video of a short film, a reenacting video would inevitably pop up and it'd get me started. And then of course, you know, there's gear videos and things like that that would pop up. And I think a lot of that, despite the YouTube layout changing, I think a lot of the, the same processes are the same where someone will look up a reenactor or they'll look up a, a YouTuber that shoots the guns or they'll see something about the gear or the helmets and it'll inevitably give them other videos that draw them into reenacting. Sure. That's really interesting. Uh, you must see it all the time in the comments. Um, like you mentioned, people who aren't reenactors or who are just getting started and who are basically looking to YouTubers as sort of authorities on World War II reenacting, which I think could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on whose videos they're watching, really. And that's absolutely true. Kind of the, I guess, I don't want to say psychology, but I guess for lack of a better term, when, when someone is on a podium or they're on a platform and they're preaching and there's no one there to counter argue or debate with them because you don't have that it's someone who is going to be saying stuff that people will take at face value ultimately and so for better or for worse you will end up having this mass of people that will hear something on a youtube video and they'll believe it because they haven't heard a counter now i'm not saying that youtube needs to be a debate platform or anything like that but it does give everyone a voice for better or for worse. Sure. It can kind of feel, I think, sometimes like a, a debate platform, especially in the comment sections of some YouTube videos that I look at. Um, I mean, do you? how do you feel about sort of the dynamic of putting out there content that you're creating, you're putting effort into this thing, and then depending on kind of what happens in the comment sections, 
maybe sort of discussion based on that could go in a different direction than uh, w- what you originally intended, or is, is that not something that happens? It, it can happen. I know that sometimes there is a very fruitful discussion about something. Um, an example of this, which hasn't happened simply because there's lack of knowledge, is radio procedures. I recently made a video on that. And for all intents and purposes, radio procedures is actually one of the hardest things to do research on because, truth be told, there really wasn't a standardized radio procedure or protocol. And so what you'll inevitably find on the forums is people debating and stuff like that about what is correct and what's not. Um, truth of the matter is, is there really is no correct way. Um, but if you relate that to different kinds of videos, whether it's about helmets or about how to put on gear, I mean, I have a video where people will talk about, um, well, when I was in the army, this is what we did. And what you say here doesn't really add up to what my experience was. And then you have other people comment saying, well, that was your experience, but we're not focused on your experience. We're focused on these people's experiences. And so there can be a very fruitful debate and conversation, but there can also be a detrimental one where people will just spew garbage, things that are completely unrelated and will take a dive somewhere else. I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but if I could think of one and find one, it'd probably have something to do with, you know, I'll make a video about German equipment and someone will say, this is a perfect example of why the Germans were the best military in the world and why they beat everyone until the very end. And then it goes down that whole tangent, as you can imagine. (laughs) Sure. Uh, Obviously, uh, a lot of these platforms YouTube probably included, have to a greater or lesser extent become kind of hostile towards content related to World War II Germany um, since 2016 or 2017. Has that affected you and your channel at all? You know, when it comes to YouTube and the censorship dilemma, truth be told, I really haven't been affected that much. Um I know with Patreon, that platform has pretty much banned me entirely. I know in some social media platforms I've been banned, but in YouTube, I really haven't had any issues. And I think I'll give credit where credit is due. Uh, YouTube has a three-step process of banning someone. And it's basically you're given a warning. And then after your warning, you are given strikes. And you have to have three active strikes on you in order for your channel to get banned. And every strike disappears after six months. So for me, I was given a strike once. And this is right in the peak of 2020. Uh, I made a video about a training event I had. And there was a couple of uh, flags that were posted on the video. And the flags were not very... Uh, supportive of YouTube policies. And so I ended up getting a warning and then it ended up getting a strike for re-uploading it. So what I ended up doing was censoring the symbology in those flags, which that seemed to have worked just fine. But since then, I really haven't had any issues. And I think the biggest way that we can navigate it is to do what we do on Facebook and censor things where we can but also hone in the idea that it is educational and that you're not spewing ideology. Sure. 
What about like from a personal perspective as being someone who's putting himself out there in a very public way, showing your face and talking about uh, World War II German stuff? Um, what has your experience been with doing that? Well, there's there's no real easy way to say it because whatever you say can be taken a completely different way and for me I personally feel that while yes right now I'm okay I feel that people do exist in the world who are willing to not make it okay and I have yet to encounter them I know they exist but until I do I, I don't feel there's much of a risk I know a lot of times people are concerned about posting their face and things they do on social media and for me I've kind of gone about it in a way that says hey this is what I'm doing this is what I am take it or leave it I don't care um, people have asked me in the past are you worried about getting fired from your job I personally say no because if I'm gonna work for someone who wouldn't respect who I am then I wouldn't want to work for them anyway so that's kind of the approach I've taken. I know a lot of people don't have that luxury. I certainly have faced other dilemmas as well. But usually, as from a general rule of thumb, if, if people are ever finding my YouTube channel, whether at work, whether colleagues or whatever, which is, doesn't happen that often, but if they do, they usually just think it's cool. They're like, oh, this is, this is some pretty cool military stuff. I wonder how he's gotten into all that. That's awesome. The only people that have ever given me, uh, ever thrown smoke at my direction were other reenactors in my personal experience, which I know everyone's experience differs amongst each other. I've heard reenactors getting fired for things they post on Facebook. I have yet to encounter that in my personal life. But all the shade that's ever been thrown my direction was from mainly other reenactors. Which is kind of too bad. Uh, you know, of course, you wish it wouldn't be that way, but here we are, you know. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I have no animosity towards people. I think people will do what people are going to do. And especially if it's just in the reenacting community, then it doesn't really, it's not real life. You know, it's, it's, it's your LARP life. So it's whatever. Sure. About how long have you been doing World War II reenacting, Frank? So I've been doing reenacting since I was 11 years old. So I've been doing this for a while now. I'm 24, uh, 13 years. My first event, my grandma found a newspaper clipping of a guy who owned a World War II Jeep locally. And uh, she set me up to meet with him and talk about his Jeep. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world when I was 11. You know, I'd never seen World War II stuff before in person. And... Uh, he set me up with my first event. I bought the gear and I, I attended my first event when I was 11 over the summer. And um, it's been a, a happy and a very fruitful and ever evolving 13 years for me. That's really cool. Yeah, I like how you say that it's ever evolving. Um, that's that's been my experience as well. But you've had kind of a, a bunch of different projects um, in the works in your time as a reenactor, haven't you? <laughs> that's right. Oh, man, there's there's so many projects that I've done in my time. I remember 
there was a time back in the mid 2010s it was all about just the hype you know showing off the gear getting obsessed with the the small details and then um, i remember there was a time when i started a patreon for support that way i could you know as as you get older real life starts to make a take a toll on you and having that relief is is beneficial so i remember i started a patreon a few years ago which have since been turned down. And of course, there is other projects that I've started doing, like um, there was an LAH series I really wanted to get into, but uh, real life has taken so much of my time that I don't have enough time to sit down for 10 hours a day to edit a video, even though I really want to. But the last project that, and the latest project that I've been working on is actually making my own militaria. So I've been working on Africa Corps pith helmets, and it's been my goal to make the most accurate reproductions, surpassing even the reproductions that have previously existed from lost battalions. And I have a couple other ideas in the works that people will know more about later this summer when I come out with my prototypes. But that's really all my mission right now. That's really cool. What was your process in uh, creating these Africa Corps pith helmets? Kind of, did you have to uh, take apart an original, or how did you kind of learn how how this goes together? I imagine there are a lot of different skills that come into play making a complex item like that. Oh, of course. Uh, well, with everything, first comes the idea, and ever since I started my Africa Corps impression, at least my modern one, and really got into loving the Africa campaign and Africa Corps reenacting, I've always wanted an accurate pith helmet. And throughout my life of reenacting, I was told one of two things. You're either going to have to find a reproduction that Lost Battalions made 20 years ago, and those are almost impossible to find, or you're going to have to bite the bullet and buy an original, which are really expensive and they're very, very fragile. And so over the last few years, one of my friends and I, we were talking and we talked about the prospect of making our own reproduction pith helmets. Now, at that time, when I first started thinking about it, I knew it was a lot of work. I just didn't know what work it entailed. And so my first instinct was to actually reach out to a number of vendors. Uh, I reached out to um, various ones like What Price Glory. I reached out to some custom makers in Europe and uh, among other places. And I said, hey, um, I would really like to get an Africa Corps pith helmet. And I'd really like one that's accurate. And I'll, I'd pay you money for one if you want to make one. And every single time they either tell me that it's impossible to make because it's a um, lost trade or they just don't have the skill set to deal with it. And so after a while of asking around, hey, can someone do this for me? I finally decided, okay, I'm going to start researching how to do one myself. And the first thing I did was I had one of my friends show me a pith helmet that was pretty much destroyed and mangled up so I could see the inside. I didn't have to take it apart. I could leave it as it was. But just looking at where the shreds were on the fabric, I could see what was going on underneath the surface. And um, one thing is for certain, and that is making a pith helmet the exact same way that they did during the war. That is a lost art. And that is something that unless you have a manual that they made that tells you how to do it, 
you're not going to be able to perfectly replicate it. So I had to do the next best thing, which was doing the methods that they currently use in uh, the modern pith helmets, which is taking pith material and uh, shaping it and mixing it with paper mache and things like that, getting the overall shape. And then once you have that, you have a canvas cover that you have to make. So um, it is a challenging process and is very tedious. I remember when I first started making them five months ago, each helmet would take me about 10 to 14 hours, depending on how much time I really wanted to pay attention into it. Now they take me about six hours, but uh, six hours doesn't mean that I'm you know, making these one a day or anything. I still have a full-time job and other priorities to take care of as well. Uh, I know I, I saw that you launched those. I think it's a really cool project. Um, definitely something that's really kind of been needed, especially since you've been doing an Africa Corps themed uh, World War II reenactment event, which I think is really interesting. Um, was, was last year the first year that you hosted that event? Our first year is officially 2021, so two years ago. Um, that's when we did our first one, and it's, 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 a, it's a funny story of how it all started. It got started as sort of the same way the pith helmets did. You know, no one was making the pith helmets, and I decided why not be the one to do it. So to take us back to 2010... There was an event that happened in West Texas in the Monahans Park. It's a sand dunes park in West Texas. Uh, it's really cool. It's a nice place. But there was a small World War II reenactment that happened there once every year, once every other year, that had a, a focus on the eastern desert, so in Libya and um, fighting against the British and the French in the Africa Corps. And this event... Um, when I went to it for the first time in 2017, I believe, it was pretty fun. It was very small. It was a local tactical. It was something that wasn't pushed as a national event. It was more like a regional event. Hey, anyone in the Texas or surrounding states, this is the event to go to. And there was a couple of guys that went out. And when I say a couple, I mean enough to make an event happen, but not so many to make it feel huge. And... Um, the event was run by a unit that I was formerly a part of, and that unit kind of lost a lot of momentum. And as a result, the core group that held it together and made the events happen stopped putting on the events combined with uh, a new park ranger that wasn't very friendly to reenactments. That's also one of the things, uh, if you can avoid using public property, that's your best bet for hosting events uh, for that reason. And so... That event kind of died, and there was a couple years where there wasn't a North Africa event, but we all secretly wanted one to happen again. And one of my friends, his name is Brandon, he knew a guy who owned 40,000 acres of private land in West Texas. And it wasn't the sand dunes, because... The sand dunes, uh, truth be told, are not very fun to play in. It gets very hot in there, and there's a lot of sand spiders and things like that. But this place was perfect. It was super high elevation. You had 40,000 acres of your own land. It was perfect climate and weather. And the terrain was absolutely phenomenal. 
if you ever look at the pictures that we have and you look at pictures of guys in Tunisia, it looks exactly the same. There's a particular original photo that I'm thinking of. It's a, it's a couple of soldiers standing next to a half track with some mountains in the background. It looks just like our location. But um, my friend had approached me with the prospect of hosting an event for about a year and a half. And I always turned it down because it was in a low proximity to the border and it was, you know, 15 hours away for most people. And so for me, I was like, well, why are we going to go all the way out there for a small tactical? But over the years when we were talking about it, we figured, well, why don't we, instead of keeping it as a small tactical, why don't we try to make it a national event and grow to it? So... Uh, when we talked about it, when I realized that that location is actually a very safe location, there isn't any traffic on the border at all because it's mountainous and it's treacherous, um, I said, all right, let's try it out. So we had our first event in 2021, and um, our first event was never meant to be the big event. It was just meant to be an event that says, hey, we're real and we exist, and next year it's going to be even better. So that's that's pretty much how we got started. That's really cool. Did you have to uh, work to make contact with uh, World War II allied reenactors who could do that kind of Africa portrayal? Or did you kind of already have an existing community of people doing that uh, as a holdover from the events that you guys used to do? So everyone that went to our first Africa event was actually new blood. Uh, new blood in the sense that they had never done the impression before. And the the Allied commander, his name is Chris, he was fairly new to World War II reenacting at the time. He had the kit and he had done some things. He was mainly a Civil War reenactor. But the way we found him was we just advertised on Facebook saying, hey, we're doing this event. If you're interested, let me know. And he sent me a message and he said, hey, I got... 10 other guys who would be interested in doing this kind of an event. And so I said, great. And most of his guys are Colorado based or West Texas based. So they're all, you know, in the same region. And we communicated quite a bit for a few months. It's kind of funny. We, we, we came up with the idea to, to finally run this event and we only had two months to plan for it. So uh, we were really flying by the seat of our pants, but we made it work. And when Chris showed up and I showed up and my friend Brandon showed up, you know, we, we got together, we had our small group of guys. We had about 10 guys on both sides or on either side, I should say. And, uh, we made a plan. We made it work. It was a two day event. We talked about our image. We said, Hey, uh, we want to grow. We want to make this bigger and y'all are new blood. So let's, let's give you an opportunity. And we promoted from within, we ended up making Chris the overall allied commander before he was just like a squad leader with a, uh, Brandon was in charge of Chris in our first year, but we eventually bumped him up to being a platoon leader and now a company commander. And now Brandon can do the job that he wants to do with vehicles on the Axis side. So a lot of it did have to, uh, grow from, seeking people who had a similar, I wouldn't say goal, but I would say they had a similar desire to do something that we did. And once we got together, you know, the power of a few minds working together is, is really, you know, immeasurable. <laughs> 
Sure. Yeah, I think it's really important to have a, a team like that. Absolutely. I, if I didn't have a team, I wouldn't know exactly where I'd be right now. You know, because I might be the access coordinator, I might be the main guy in charge, but at the end of the day, I wouldn't be able to do my job and I wouldn't even have the purpose that I do if it wasn't for my team. And, and that goes from people as high as being vehicle coordinators and bringing vehicles out to as low as people who are simply just in charge of water. About how many people did you guys get at that at that first event? So at the very first event, we had, I believe, nine Americans and 11 or 10 Germans show up. We had uh, U.S. infantry, just a small squad, and we had a mix of German infantry and vehicles. So we had a Kuba wagon and two motorcycles show up our first year. Um, in our second year, we grew. We grew quite a bit. The Americans went from 10 to 25, um, plus they had a Jeep show up that year. And then in the German camp, we went from 10 or 11, and we jumped up to 37, so a 250% increase. Plus, we had even more vehicles on the Axis side. So at first, we started out with two motorcycles and a Kuba wagon. The next year, we had a SDK of Z222 armored car. We had a troop truck, and we had a bunch of motorcycles. And this year, we're expecting to go and surpass our vehicles and double our vehicles while um, also staying steady with our numbers, maybe getting a little higher than last year's. Those are really impressive numbers, especially considering the challenges of even assembling a kit to do this event. I mean, most reenactors who are doing uh, Western Europe scenarios, they don't actually have a lot of the items that are needed to do a, a tropical Africa impression. So for a lot of the people going, uh, it's likely, I think, that they uh, put together impressions specifically to do this annual event. Absolutely. The impression is definitely one of two of the biggest factors. Uh, the second one being the distance and commitment. But uh, the impression is absolutely one of the hardest things because Everyone's already got their kit for a continental thing. They already have their stuff. And to have to throw half of it to the side and get new stuff all together, it's asking a lot, especially for people who don't already do multiple impressions. Uh, you'll always have the person who has impressions for literally anything, and they use them maybe once in their lifetime. But those people are very few in number. Um, the next thing is the distance and the commitment. As weird as it is to think, more than 50% of the people that attend our event are actually not even from the region. We have people coming from New York, Washington State, Wisconsin, Florida, the Carolinas. They're coming from every corner of the country, and now this year, even from the UK and France. So to, to not only put together this obscure impression that is new you're also having to make a real life commitment to this event, which is remarkable in so many ways. And to me and to all the other coordinators, we're, we're stuck in stupefaction with how real this is and how real people are making it for themselves. When you were getting started, did you have to talk about or think about making compromises with regard to realism in order to make it easier for people to participate? Or what kind of approach did you settle on in that regard? 
So at first, we had the campaigner mindset. We wanted to jump on the bandwagon, and we really wanted to be the exclusive campaigner North Africa event. And this was, you know, right after 2020, 2021. So uh, the COVID restrictions had just started shutting everything down, and um, it gave us an opportunity to jump on the um campaigner mindset because that's that's when it really had a huge revival thing uh i guess a renaissance of campaignerism or high authenticity standards or whatever you want to call it and we were really hyped about it we had done a number of immersion events leading up to the africa event and we were like yeah let's let's keep this going let's keep doing it uh but what we ended up realizing was that by being only campaigner by only being the hard guys that live in the the foxholes you're actually being very exclusive in the wrong ways now i'm a very big proponent in gatekeeping and having a sort of exclusive uh, mindset when it comes to your hobby and your events but being strictly campaigner and strictly focusing on the authenticity standards ultimately took away from the fun side of things and by doing that, we shut out a huge amount of people from wanting to come in. So what we decided to do was we decided to make a compromise in a way where we're not going to compromise on the authenticity. We're not going to compromise on taking the event serious, but we are going to allow it to be fun in other ways. And one of the things that we did was we made the thought experiment of, okay, well, 19th century and 18th century reenactors, you know, they have their quote unquote campaigners, but they also have other things that make their events fun too. And there's a reason why they have thousands of people going to their events. So what are they doing that World War II is not doing? And one of the things that we realized was the 19th and 18th century reenactors put a huge emphasis on the camp life. And to us as World War II reenactors, when you think of camp life at an event, that's, that's ringing some bells and that's raising some red flags because your typical World War II camp is your run-of-the-mill farb event where people just hang out in their farb, they drink modern beer, they have a campfire, and they tell stories to the young kids about what reenacting used to be like and how it sucks now. And to most reenactors today, when you hear about the camp life, it just, it turns you off. So we asked ourselves the question, what are they doing that makes camp life fun? And that question has driven us to think of putting on World War II events, not as putting on a, or hosting a immersion events where you can put yourself in the boots and things like that like yes obviously we're still doing that but instead of running an event like that now we're sort of running it as a carnival for reenactors by reenactors and not that it's an actual carnival where you have clowns and circuses but we have things like a px that we're running where in the px you can buy things that you would want for the event you know cigarettes coffee candy um, we're also having a bar set up to where it's not just a bar where you get alcohol and hang out, but we have a hookah and you can rent out a hookah and you can buy some poker chips and you can gamble with your period script. So you, you, you use real cash and you buy fake money for the event and you use that to gamble with and you can use that to buy things. 
Um, on top of that, the camp life, we're putting an emphasis on squad and platoon cohesion. So instead of it just being you show up at an immersion event and you sleep in your foxhole and you, you're on watch all night, now we encourage people to build relationships with each other. Figure out where you're from, figure out what your interests are, you know, build those connections and really get an experience in an area that we haven't really delved into yet. And in our experience as event coordinators, it's worked and it's actually been the largest reason why people like our event, despite it being immersion focused and despite people coming for the immersion, if we didn't have the camp life and if we didn't have the social aspect, people simply wouldn't think the event as highly and they probably would do it once, but not again. So uh, that is that is sort of our compromise. That's really insightful. The, the scale of this event site that you have is absolutely mind-boggling to me. Uh, where I live, like swaths of private property that big simply don't exist. How remote is this site where you guys do the event? It is the most remote place that you could possibly want to do a reenactment. And I give credit to the remote side of the site that contributes to the immersion. You know, when you walk into an event, and let's say it's a 24-hour event or a two-day event at best, when you walk into an event, you still have the gas station snacks in your belly. You still remember the pit stops you made, and you probably still have a neck cramp from being in the car for a few hours. And those memories don't really go away until you're about 12 to 20 hours into your event. And really, when you think of it, because of that, you can't get fully immersed until you've been in it for so long. And it, our event is so remote that when you go there, you feel like you're on another planet. The nearest town is an hour away by driving, and the nearest city that actually produces light pollution and actually has you know, a Walmart and things like that, it's four hours away. And um, the night sky... To give you some perspective, it is, if you look at a map of darkest points in the country, it's actually one of the darkest places in the country. And there's a reason why there's so many observatories out there. But that place is so dark at night that the natural starlight can brighten up your whole way. You don't need flashlights at night. You can use the stars and you can see everything perfectly. Uh, What I always tell people is... If you ever wanted a chance to see the kind of night sky that the ancient Greeks got to see every night, this event is your opportunity. Um, So it's a very remote event. And it's because it's so remote, because it's so far away, that you really feel like you're, you may not feel like you're in Africa, but you'll at least feel like you're in a different world for sure. That sounds really beautiful and nice. Uh, what What is the logistical reality for getting to this event? Like for someone flying from the Northeast or flying from Europe even, uh, is it a matter of flying to a city and then renting a car and, and hours of driving? So it really depends on people's circumstances. As an event coordinator, I am trying to put something on for the reenactors. I'm not doing it because I'm getting money. Really, I put hundreds of dollars out of my own pocket into this event. Um, I'm not doing it for the clout. You know, I give most of my credit up to other reenactors who go. So I do it first and foremost to give people a good experience. 
and to keep our hobby growing and to keep it alive. And one of the things that I do is I take an active role in assisting people in their travel uh, situation. So people that need carpooling, I get together with other people and I figure out, hey, who is someone who has a similar route that I can contact and get them to carpool with each other so that this guy can make it. And it could be like a 20-hour drive for them, but at least I helped them figure out, hey, at least now you're not driving alone, you're driving with four other people. Um, and there's lots of other options too, like carpooling across the country is one way to do it. Flying and doing a rental vehicle is another option, which I know there are people who are doing that, especially the guys from the UK. They're flying in, they're going to have a rental vehicle, uh, and they're going to drive out. Um, and then, of course, I, as an event coordinator, am personally helping people directly. So there's a gentleman coming from up north. He's flying into my local city, and I'm going to pick him up from the airport, and I'm going to take him to the event with me. So there's lots of different ways to do it. There's an easy way and there's a hard way. The hard way is doing it all yourself and the easy way is having that support. The next thing is how do you make sure that this event is worth your time? Well, this event is a week-long commitment. The event starts on Tuesday officially. Uh, things go live on Wednesday and things die down on Saturday and then you have all day on Sunday to, to go home basically. So you're not just spending 20 hours to drive out to this event just so you can spend 20 hours at the event, you're driving out and you're there for days, days and days and days. And that's what I think is what makes it worth the effort. If this event was just a simple 12 hour event or a 14 hour or 20 hour event, I wouldn't say it's worth it. I'd say it'd be a good local event, but don't bother, which that's my philosophy. If I have to drive more to an event one way than it lasts in total, then I'm not going to it. So. Uh, that's that's the logistics with getting there. Uh, I love the idea of a reenactment event of that duration. I've done some in my life, but it's been a while. Uh, I agree with what you said. It, it does take some time to really get into the mindset. And being on site for so long, it, you can really kind of reach a sort of a next level where you kind of get that feeling that this is my daily life. You know, I'm, I'm living out here uh, in the field and I'm, I'm subsiding off of subsisting off of rations. Uh, that, that also does provide a lot of challenges though. And I've got to think that being out there in the desert has its own set of difficulties. What's it really like being out there for all that time and uh, experiencing the, the temperatures and the weather and everything else? So to touch on the first part of your, your statement, how it really makes you feel like you're in a different world, and so to speak, for me, when, it, when I was there last year as a company commander for the first time in that role, for me personally, because as someone in staff, I, I'm not really in the event. I'm outside of the event, managing logistics and making sure the event is running. So I'm not in the combat. I'm not shooting. I'm not focused on the enemy. I'm focused on making sure that the event is running. And so for me, there's no immersion with being in Africa in 1943. However, I really felt like I was a company commander. There was not a single point where I did not feel like I was acting as a real company commander. 
when the event was over, I was depressed, you know, post reenactment depression, but this time it was different because it felt like I lost a whole company. Um, so being out in the desert and the realities of the desert and being in the climate and things like that, it's eye opening for people who have never done it before. A lot of people think the desert is just sandy and hot, but to anyone who has shown up to this event, they will tell you that, yeah, it might be sandy. Yeah, it might be hot, but that's only a couple out of a hundred other things that you got to think about in the desert. You have the temperature, which yes, it can get hot, but it can also get really cold. Everyone knows who was at our event last year that it got really, really cold. It felt like a, a winter time event. It got so cold at night. The reason for that is because the sand doesn't keep any heat. And because there's no clouds and because it's a high altitude, all the heat that was on the Earth's surface during the day is gone. It's a vacuum. So even though it might be 80 degrees during the day, it's going to be 20 degrees at night. You will be shivering and you will think you're in the middle of winter. Um, the next thing is the weather in other ways. People think that it's just going to be hot and dry and sunny and that's it. But guess what? The wind is a reality in the desert. Last year we had a dust storm. A lot of people have never experienced a dust storm before. And so uh, some people refer to it as the sandstorm from last year, but... Uh, we had a dust storm, and uh, that was last year. We had a dust storm, and it was miserable. The wind is blowing 20 miles an hour constantly. Everyone's tents are starting to blow over, and you have to have goggles. Otherwise, if you open your eyes, you're going to get sand in your eyes. You know, you got to wear a mask or else you're going to breathe in dust and you're going to cough, and it's just miserable. And that's a reality of being in the desert. Our first year, we had an actual sandstorm where you saw a giant wall of sand blow towards you. Uh, it looked right out of a movie. You couldn't see more than five feet in front of you because of the sand. Uh, so the second year did not have it that bad. Other things to consider is the terrain. Sure, there's sand, but people don't realize there's cliffs and drop-offs. And if you're not careful and you're not looking the right direction... You could fall 500 feet to your death. Now, of course, we play in a safe area, so we don't have to worry about that. But that's part of it. And even though we're in the safe area, you can still see the dangerous area a kilometer away. So uh, that's another reality. And then, of course, the biggest reality of them all, of being in the desert, is the actual logistics of everything. At events, we are so used to the idea of, if we are uncomfortable, we can just go to our car. If we are hungry, we can sneak out at nighttime and go to the nearest McDonald's, right? I'm guilty of doing that on some occasions. I know other people are as well. Um, not that there's a problem with that, but you cannot do that at this event. The nearest gas station is an hour away, and because it's a small town, they close at 10 o'clock at night, so there is no sneaking out. Your car is dropped off in a parking lot three kilometers away while we take you into the desert using a military vehicle. You can't just go back to your car whenever you want. So when you're out there, you're alone. You may as well be a person stranded on a deserted island. So these are the realities that we have that most people who go for the first time, they have no idea what they're getting themselves into. And I think it's a good thing. 
but it's also something to be weary of for sure. That sounds super fun and cool. Yeah, I can't imagine doing an event. I've I've done events that are in rural areas, certainly, but to do an event where the nearest gas station is an hour away is like inconceivable to me. <laughs> yeah, I remember that was one of the things that made it risky for us our first year because we had never done something like that. And so the idea of, you know, driving an hour one way and doing an event and then driving in an hour the other way just to get back to the gas station that was an idea that we were like, man, do we really want to do this? But we're ultimately glad that we did. And thankfully with the logistics in place and knowing the local people and having it figured out, it's, it's really not a problem, but it's definitely something that I'd encourage people to experience if they possibly can. Having a couple of these events now under your belt, what are some of the lessons that you've learned from doing it? Maybe things that you uh, thought were going to work out that didn't work out or um, things that, were surprising to you? There are three things that come to mind. The first thing is distance and vehicles. The second thing is communication. And the third is auxiliary support. So distance and vehicles. Last year, we had a large number of vehicles come out, at least larger than we had seen at events in a while. And we thought, well, we have all these vehicles, so why don't we make it a vehicle-dependent event? And we put both the American camp and the German camp about four kilometers away from each other. We thought, why not? We'll get vehicles. Well, (laughs) that was a disaster because what ended up happening was that the vehicles either crapped out or commitments weren't fulfilled and nothing against those people or anything. Stuff happens. Life happens. No big deal. Uh, But things happened to where we had a vehicle-dependent event and we didn't have the vehicles to make it work. And it was a mess. Now, people still had fun and they loved it, but I certainly know people did not love walking around for two kilometers, not finding anyone and having to walk two kilometers back to their camp. I know that was not fun for sure. So that was a huge lesson learned. And from now on, we're making it a non-vehicle-dependent event but we will make it to where we have side scenarios that require a vehicle to where, you know, sure, the camps might only be a kilometer and a half away from each other, but we might have an objective that's four kilometers down the road to where if we have a vehicle that works, we could probably do something and schedule it and arrange it. So we have the option, but we're not dependent on it either. Uh, The second thing is communication. Last year, we had terrible communication. It's laughable at how terrible it is. Now, I know some people might think that this is common sense. Why didn't we plan something sooner? But lo and behold, I didn't have much experience running events. So a lot of these things that might sound like common sense, they were not common sense, at least to me. So communication between the camps is a big thing. There were no radios and there's no cell reception out there. So the only way that we could communicate was if both of us drove a kilometer uh, to the cantina, which is a modern housing unit that has Wi-Fi. And if both of us met at a certain time every night, we could plan out the day and follow the plan and things like that. Well, that never worked. We never met at the same time. Uh, There were days where for the course of 18 hours, I was not able to communicate with the other commander. There were times when I wanted to put something in place that I simply couldn't, and it was a disaster because of communication. Like I said, the event still succeeded and we all had fun, but 
it could have been better had we had better communication. Um, of course, this year we're overhauling the radio setup and we are going to be using high powered radios to communicate. So there will be no issue of communication at all. And all of our scenarios are going to be pre-planned out before the event. So that way, even if radio communications fail, even if um, we're somehow not able to walk the 500 meters away to walk and talk to each other, we'll still know what's going on at the worst. So we have three options, which is going to help us. And the last thing, auxiliary support. I had no staff last year. I was a one-man team taking care of an entire company. And anyone who has any experience running events knows that is not good. That is shooting yourself in the face. And I had no staff. So I was cooking the meals. I was getting people from point A to point B. I was registering people at check-in. I was doing everything. And within the first 36 hours of the event starting, things started to fall apart. And thankfully, I had a wonderful group of friends who came and they said, hey, Frank, listen, you're wearing too many hats and the event is going to start suffering if you don't stop wearing all these hats. Let us take care of some of these things for you. And I said, okay, great. So they started taking care of the food. They started managing other things for me. And that was a hard lesson learned. And so this year I actually have an 11 man dedicated staff where each man is responsible for a certain part of logistics or uh, field command. And uh, right down from who's getting water to who's prepping food to who's cutting the potatoes to who's on the radio at all times to who's driving the truck to go from uh, the HQ to the camp to pick up new arrivals to whatever. That way I can focus on the fun stuff, which this year I intend on focusing on things like um, making a proto-documentary at the event and uh, filming things and doing interviews and, you know, having the actual job of being a leader instead of being someone who's trying to be their mom, so to speak. So that those were the three biggest lessons that I learned from running events and things that I will always preach to people as being things that they need to have taken care of long in advance. That's really good insight. Um, what about promoting the event? What did you find to be like the most effective way to get the word out about what you guys are doing and try to drive interest and, and get people to come out to your thing? So contrary to what some might assume, I actually haven't really used my YouTube channel much to promote the event. Uh, yeah, I showed some pictures online. Yeah, I made a small video, but it wasn't really anything that said, hey, we're doing this. You should join us. It was more or less just showing off, kind of. Uh, all of our media and advertising has been through Facebook and word of mouth. Um, on Facebook, we played a big game, and in a way, it was kind of a risk. You know, we would say, hey, we got a lot of people coming out to this event. And while, yes, we had a number of registrations, that doesn't mean they're all going to come out. Uh, we would promote vehicles heavily. Hey, this vehicle's coming out. That vehicle's coming out. We'd show vehicles from our first year and we'd say things like, hey, um, those of you who are traveling far, if you want to travel to this event or you have interest, let me know and I'll help you set up with carpooling or flights or whatever. If you need a trip to the airport, I'll drive you personally. Uh, and so promoting things like that is what I believe to be the biggest contributors to people coming from far away. Now, this year, because I'm not going to be 
the mom of the event, I'm going to be doing my own thing, which is making a documentary where now I'm going to make a promotional video that interviews people. Hey, what makes it worth coming out to this event? Hey, uh, what about this event is different from the others? Things like that. And I'll showcase a lot of footage of combat. I'll showcase stuff from the encampment, you know, guys being guys, doing their thing, hanging out, having a good time. I'll have my own audio overlay and I'll have some interviews. And I think that documentary that I make is going to be the one that really becomes our main advertising piece. But in history, we've pretty much just made a bunch of Facebook posts. We were active on the Facebook page and we really just had to build momentum. It wasn't until this year where we could take a step back. Yeah, momentum is is so important, I think, for, for any event. And I think you guys have done a good job with it. I mean, the there's a lot of hype out there for what you're doing. And, uh, you know, it's clear that you've put work into getting people talking about it and also putting together a quality product that lives up to the hype. Of course. Thank you. What about the like the actual tactical scenarios that you guys plan out? The event is so long. What goes into sort of uh, scripting what it is that people are doing out there for for day after day? So our first year, we really wanted to focus on making it a real battle, and we're going to retrace the steps of the real battle. And we did. And to a large part, it was very successful, and it was cool and all that stuff. But it just didn't really scratch the itch. Uh, the second year, we tried to script every little engagement that we could, and because we had our logistical issues like our transport going to the side, it made it really hard to keep up, so we really had to micromanage. But from our feedback, we realized that we needed to rely more on the momentum of the event itself. And so we tried this out in our Operation Cobra event back in October, to where we could rely on the momentum. So instead of scripting every minute of the day, we would just say, hey, by this point, you need to get to that objective. And by this time of the day, you need to get to that objective. And by relying on the momentum for soldiers to complete objectives as they had the ability to do so, we found that guys actually liked that a lot more. So this year, we're going to do a mix of scripting and we're going to do a mix of pure momentum. So we have two battlefields. Our main battlefield is four square kilometers, and there's five objectives on there. There's a crossroads, a fuel depot, a crashed plane site, a bridge, and an observation post on a mountain peak. And it's going to be one of those things where during the day, you're going to be given an order, hey, uh, we have word that the enemy is over here. I want you to take and hold that position until you're relieved. Things like that. And I'll have a map, and I'll be somewhat close to the front, so I'll be able to manage that as needed, but it'll be one of those things where I could say to the platoon leaders, hey, um, I want you to capture these three objectives and hold them, and that is your mission for the first several hours of the day, and later on we might push and go forward. And whether they take it or not is up to them. If they take too many casualties and they have to pull back, then so be it. Uh, But our second battlefield is stuff that's kind of far away. Like I said, we have things that are many kilometers away and require a vehicle to get to. But the idea is, is that it allows you to get your itch for riding in a vehicle and going the distance. 
but it also allows you to get off the main site. As one could imagine, if you see the same site every day, four days in a row, it kind of gets old. And while yes, we have enough terrain to theoretically play on a completely different site every year, there are some sites that are better than others and we would like to keep using. But to keep people from getting bored, it's, hey, we're gonna go off field, we're gonna drive a few miles and we're gonna go to a completely different objective that is on the map that you can see using a satellite photo and we're gonna check it out and we're gonna see if there's any loot there, we're gonna see if any enemies are there and if there are, great, we'll have a small skirmish. And if not, well, at least we took a joyride and there's probably something good waiting for us. Last year, one of our secret missions that we had, and I'm happy to uh, talk about it now since it's been a year, but we had a super secret special mission. And it was, I believe, on a Thursday night where we drove off of the field and we drove into a canyon. And I told the soldiers that they had, there was a special object, a top secret box that they were looking for in the field. And many of them were digging in the sand, they were looking behind bushes, and after a while they eventually found it. And I just want to, to leave it as a guess real quick, Chris, I'll, I'll let you take a guess. Um, when you think of being in the desert, when you think of being in the Africa Corps, what is one of those cultural things that always comes to mind that kind of brings you some nostalgia. There's a particular movie that I'm thinking about. I don't know. Is it, uh, is it like Indiana Jones? <laughs> yes, Indiana Jones. And so the super secret box that they found was a replica that one of my friends made of the German crate for the Ark of the Covenant. I love it. That's so cool. So even though it was very Hollywood-esque, it was completely ahistorical, it was all scripted, the guys loved it. They saw of it. Of course. They lost their minds. They're like, man, I was thinking about Indiana Jones the entire way to this event. This is awesome. And of course, we had a small scripted event where you know, we took up the crate and I gave a small speech about, you know, how this is a secret weapon and we're going to use it to win the war. And then all of a sudden, a few flares go up. And we're like, what's going on? And smoke grenades are thrown down. There's a couple of machine guns being fired. You hear a crack of a whip and that tells us to retreat. And then all of a sudden we retreat and we come back and the box is empty. Who do you think grabbed it, you know? <laughs> wow, I love it. So we had That's a, great. Yeah, it, it kind of piqued everyone's inner nerd and brought back that childish nostalgia that we all had for that movie. And um, it was one of those things that we incorporated and we plan on doing more. So that's, that's sort of uh, how our, our field operations work. Yeah. You got to keep it fun. That's really great. It's, it's a glorified theme park for adults. It really is. <laughs> and when you continue to think of it that way, it makes running the event that much more fun and it makes being a part of the event that much more fun. It's one of them events you can't really describe it, you sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually in Normandy. I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage, but I do think that there is room to grow. A lot of reenactors probably had like some sort of burnout maybe from like years past. It sucks, but it was a pretty good pause for everyone to kind of like regroup and like kind of like a really nice refresh to get back out there. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life.
you've got a lot of fans out there, Frank. You know, there were multiple people that requested that you come on the podcast. Um, what, I guess, would be your kind of advice for people out there who are listening, who are reenactors? Um, I know there's been endless talk about the state of the hobby, improving the hobby, the, the mindset of reenacting. You know, what's your what's your kind of like big take based on everything that you've achieved and the success that you've had doing all this stuff? I believe in a couple of key phrases. Everything will be what it is, whatever you make of it. I also believe that things are the way they are if you let them be that way. So in other words, it is what it is, but does it have to be? I am personally in the ballpark that, yes, the hobby is dying. I believe that, yeah, our hobby is suffering right now and the censorship is terrible and, and all this other stuff. And there's a lot of things that you could talk about to make yourself sad. But the reality is the hobby is what you make of it. If you're going to go to an event thinking that, oh, this might be the last event because my friends don't want to go anymore, then you need to do something about it. What are you going to do to make your friends keep coming out? What are you going to do to make this hobby be inspirational for other people to come in? If you think our hobby is dying, what are you going to do about it? Or if you think that we are on the decline and all we're doing is, you know, FARB events or whatever, what are you going to do about it? You have the power. I'm 24 years old. I started hosting this event when I was 21, 22-ish. You don't need to be an old guy with all these connections to, to run an event or to run a unit. Now, I'm not saying that being young is necessarily good either because it comes with other disadvantages. But you don't have to be the old boomer guy to, to run an event. If you don't like the way things are going, you have just as much power to make a change as anyone else does. So uh, my, my advice to people is to, despite the despair, keep your head up high. And if you don't like something, be the change you want to see. And if you build it, they will come. So that's my advice. I think that's great advice. Um, if people want to find out more about what you're doing or attend your event, how can they find out about it? So we have a Facebook page. Now, I know Facebook is hard for some to navigate. The reason is, is some of us have lost our accounts and have just given up doing Facebook. And we also have a website. So our Facebook page is the forum side of things. The Facebook page is where we discuss things. It's where I make big announcements. It's where we can post our pictures and hype each other up and that kind of stuff. Um, it's also the place where the staff members can get together and talk about stuff and prepare and plan and that kind of thing. But we also have the website. So for the average layman that wants to come in and check out the event, I now have a website that I just published a couple of weeks ago. It's driveontunis.com. And the event site will have all the information you need, all the documents, all the sign-up info, as well as event pictures and resources and things like that, as well as a link to the Facebook page if you want to join that. And that is where we're going to start taking things. I remember I was hearing one of your podcasts a few months ago, actually, and you talked about how people were just not even going back on Facebook because it just wasn't worth making their 10th account or whatever. So what are we going to do if the admins get banned? What are we going to do if we lose the Facebook page because a certain symbol is posted? 
Well, that's why we have a website now. So that way, if a Facebook page gets taken down, we at least have the website for information. So we have the website and the Facebook page. The Facebook page is Drive on Tunis, a national North Africa World War II reenactment. I know it's a mouthful to swallow, but that's the name of it. Uh, anyone that knows me on Facebook is happy to ask for a link. But uh, those are our two places to find out info. What are the dates for the next event? So this year, for 2023, it is... March 14th through March 18th. I'm personally showing up on the 12th, so that's a Sunday. And I will be there from the 12th all the way through the 19th. And um, this year it's happening in those times. So the event officially starts on the 14th. That's when people show up. That's when they set up. That's when they can help me do other things. The 15th, the Wednesday, is when things go live. Um, So that's when that's the last day that people can show up. That's when the combat and the immersion starts, and it ends Saturday afternoon. That way, Saturday evening, you have time to rest and relax. Uh, That way, you don't drive drowsy the next day or later that day if you're driving home earlier. And that way, you have enough time to really clean up. That way, on Sunday, whenever you go home, you have enough time to get home and have enough rest before work as well. Sounds great. Frank Boyder, thanks for coming on the program. It's been really great talking to you. Thanks for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. All right. So uh, to everybody out there, stay safe, and I'll see you in the field. We love hearing your thoughts on the podcast. So why not sign up to the Reenactors Corner on Discord? You'll find a link in the show notes that accompany this episode. And while you're there, perhaps have a think about supporting us via Patreon. Your regular donations, no matter how big or small, really count and help keep us on the air. Thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing the podcast. And we hope that you'll join us here again soon for the next episode of The Reenactors Corner.